every July, I want to draw your attention to the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you were with us last summer, the reason why in July, when people are away and when it is hot, it is very difficult for us to give attention to such a document is because the Westminster Assembly gathered on July 1st, 1643. The year before, a few months before, in that time of history, the war began. So it is not like Westminster Confession of Faith was drawn up in the peaceful time like, let's say, Ligonier Conference or, let's say, OPC General Assembly. Let's talk about theology. No, no, no. The Westminster Confession was the end result of an effort to reform Church of England as they were waging for that very cause, the parliamentarian forces against forces of king. So the war was raging, and a bunch of about 120 divines gathered in the Westminster Abbey, and not from the front, but in the behind of that building, there is a little chamber called Jerusalem Chamber. If you ever go to London, do go to Westminster Abbey. But I asked Van Dixhorn, could we, just regular people, visit Jerusalem Chamber? And he said, no. It is in Dean's private residence, and you need a special permit to go into. So you cannot go in. But really, it's about a quarter of the size of this hall that we are sitting in. And as far as I understand, there is no window. And think about 120 men breathing. And if you look up Westminster Assembly in the search engine, they are not wearing short sleeves. They are wearing black clothing fully upon themselves, sweating. And they would gather every morning, 6 a.m., there was early prayer. And the session was from 9 a.m. to 12 o'clock. And they would take break for two hours of lunch, lunch break. So they would go out. But guess what? After lunch, not everybody will return. So what would Presbyterians do? Do you know what would, what would you do in that setting? People are not coming back. What good Presbyterians will do, what they will do, they will, come, they will start a committee. Committee to ask people to return. So that went on for year after year, and I thought... As we are sitting in this place, without AC, it's a good place to remind ourselves of what they went through. Sitting there every day, all day, debating after debate, debate. They're just standing, talking, and while they're talking, you're sitting there listening without any kind of reference. No iPad, no nothing, just the Bible in your hand. 
And remember, if you wanted to write something at the time, you had to have a fountain pen, quill. And you do not have papers. You have, a, you have to have an ink. You have to have a large space to put forth a piece of paper. And you have to take down the note. People did. People did. In a small notebooks and some of that, they survive. So that's the introduction. What are we doing here today? I wanted you to have some taste of the great confession that we subscribe as a church. Let me tell you a bit about my own exposure to that document. When I began attending Westminster Seminary, in the spring semester 2002, I realized there were not many classes that I could take because they told me, do you have Greek? Greek? Do you have Hebrew? No. Then you cannot take the courses. So I couldn't take any courses that required Greek or Hebrew. And I didn't know that you need to learn those things in the seminary. I thought in the seminary you would do Bible studies and prayer meetings and so on. But I couldn't take any. So they told me to take apologetics. And that apologetics course that I took in my first semester was supposed to be taken by the third or fourth year students. But fresh into the seminary, I had to take the fourth year apologetics course. I didn't fail, but I did okay. Another one, since you don't have those languages done, you have to take practical theology. So I took like a couple of practical theology courses. And at the time, Paul Tripp was teaching. And every Monday evening from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., hall about this size was packed. And that was before Paul Tripp became famous. And it was about counseling courses, and I counseled myself. But one theology course that I was able to take was Doctrine of God. And even that, that's the second year course. First year people will learn Doctrine of the Word of God. But I, should, I was able to take Doctrine of God. And I remember sitting there, one thing that shocked me was about 150 people sitting in, but everybody was typing. You know, I did chemistry in my college years, so I did not sit through not many of the liberal arts courses. It was 2002, and people at the time, everybody had laptops, and they would type on. And I remember 150 people Typing, I couldn't hear anything. Everybody started typing. I mean, obviously, you know, seminarians, they were good people. I was just sitting there just listening like this. And 150 people just typing. It was just driving me crazy. But that professor was teaching. His name was Tim Trumper. And at the time, I realized, I realized now, not many people had PhD. Everybody was PhD student. And as he was teaching doctrine of God in that setting, he was the one who would constantly bring up 
according to the Westminster Confession. According to the Westminster Confession. And I was annoyed again because why is he bringing up something other than the Bible? I knew at least the Word of God is the supreme source. And to me, it sounded like the guy was trying to conflate the Word of God with whatever that is, Westminster Confession, and he was keep referencing back to the confession, confession, confession. So that was driving me mad too. 150 people typing, I couldn't hear anything. And this guy was talking about the confession, confession, confession. So I knew I had to get one, the copy. So I went to the bookstore and I got the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I looked at it and I just tucked it away. It was just too hard. Now the year was 2005. I looked it up, 2005. Why? Because there was one incident that I remember that for the first time that piqued my interest in the Westminster Confession. I told you that was 2002. So 2005 was the year that I graduated. So it tells me that I did not care about the Westminster Confession until the last semester of my time in the Westminster Seminary. So 2005, what happened was there was a hurricane that struck Louisiana. And my in-laws, not in-laws, my extended family, they live in Louisiana. So we were very attentive to the news. And that hurricane, the name of the hurricane was Katrina. I don't know if you remember. Katrina came and it destroyed entire New Orleans. And so many people died and there are movies about that time period. And so many people died. Submerged, entire city submerged by that hurricane Katrina. And I even remember that year, 2005, no one was naming their child Katrina uh, because it was so infamous, Katrina. So it was during that time, but I did go on to do THM, so I don't know which period that, period that was, but it was about that time. Somebody asked our beloved professor a question. And as always, I'm, I was a good student, so I would always sit in the back seat against the wall. I wouldn't sit here or in the middle seat because, you know, if people are staring at my back, you know, I'm not free. So I would always sit in the back, the last row, against the wall, sitting like this. And somebody in the front, a good student, asked a question. He said, Professor, what is the difference between people who are not Christians, who are going down to Louisiana to help them rebuild their lives. And a bunch of us, at the time, many churches went down for summer missions and so on to rebuild the houses, clean up things on the streets like that. So he asked, what's the difference between the non-believing people who will go down to Louisiana to help them rebuild and us Christians who will go down with youth group and so on to do the same work 
in the eyes of the people of New Orleans. What's the difference? He asked. How would you answer that question? What's the difference between the works of non-Christians and the works of Christians? They are doing the same thing, exactly the same thing. And what are we supposed to tell other people in our church? Somebody asked. And that venerable professor was one of the youngest ones, but highly respected pastor professor. And he belonged to OPC. And his name was Lane Tipton. And he said something about, he referenced Westminster Confession. He said something like, according to the confession, he said, their works, they look the same. The works of non-believers and the works of the believers, they look the same, but they are not the same because the motivation and the process and the goal, they are different from each other. And I was sitting in the, all the way in the back, and I was so surprised by that answer. How wise. How wise to differentiate the motivation, the process, and the end goal of those works are different. Outwardly, they look the same, but they are not the same. And I was just so surprised. And again, I just left it there because, I mean, that was that. But that was the first time that I thought the Westminster Confession, whatever it is, wherever that he got it from, it could be useful for your Christian life. Because that was an everyday question. If a youth group student could ask, as a pastor, you have to give a good biblical reference. So today what I want to do, last year I did a lot of backgrounds. You could go back and listen to it, because it will be the series. But today what I want to do is to give you a taste of the confession, how this could be used in such a fashion, and I will draw your attention to that answer that Professor Tipton gave to us in such a wise fashion. And that answer is found from 16th chapter of Good Works in the Westminster Confession. So I want you to turn there. The last paragraph of that chapter says this, Works done by unregenerate men, that's non-Christians. Although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and others. So we do not deny that their works are useful in some fashion. Yet, here it is. I believe this is what Professor Tipton referenced. Yet, because they proceed not from an heart purified by faith, that's the motivation, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, that's the process, nor to a right end, the glory of God, that's the end goal or the purpose, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God. 
or make a man meet to receive grace from God. And yet, their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God. I would concur to every phrase that we just have read. They look the same and they do the things that are useful to other people. But again, they don't have three prerequisites. It proceeds not from the heart that is not purified by faith. No, they do it according to the word of God, the process. And they cannot and will not have their end goal to be the glory of God. So what they do is actually sinful. And because they do it in neglect of those things, actually their good works make them more sinful because they are rebelling against God more. So that, I believe, was the answer. I found out years later. Dr. Tipton was my advisor for my THM and was a good friend, still is. And he is serving an OP church in Easton, Pennsylvania. And he does broadcast his service and afternoon service he is going through shorter catechism. So I do often listen to it. And he was a good man, godly man. And may God use him for his glory. So for the remainder of our time, I just want to focus on those three elements. And what you will see is I have drawn up the proof text of all the things that in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and just a reminder, they spent an almost one, one year debating on the proof text. Imagine that. It's one thing to debate about the confession itself, the phrases that go in. But probably more than a year, they are sitting here, and they are debating the phrases back and forth, back and forth. Can you, can you, can you imagine doing that? You don't have a reference book. You don't have Google search. Everything has to be in, in your head. And when you begin to read the confession with the proof text, you will be the first-rate theologian. So do not go after Sproul, MacArthur, Piper, whatever, whoever. Go to this treasure that you have in your tradition. And once you begin to understand, it will teach you so much. And I am not going to read the entire proof text, but I want to point out one thing before we look at that is, when you see original 1647 and OPC, when you have OPC version of the Westminster Confession, that black book, they updated proof text. They did. Uh, I'm not going to make any comment on it, but uh, that just confuses. PCA version does not have that updated version. They retain the original proof text, which I prefer. But let's go to Z. Could you turn to the last Z, alphabet Z? Because I want to see what the proof texts are on those three elements. 
First thing was the motivation. Yet, because they proceed not from an heart purified by faith, and it has that little uppercase Z. So what's the proof text? And we found out, we find out, the proof text for the wrong motivation is actually Genesis 4-5, verse 5. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. That is God. And Cain was very wroth. Wroth, that's angry. And his countenance fell. Why did God accept Abel's, not Cain's? When you read Hebrews 11, verse 4 and 6, it says, by faith. Huh. So we look at that, and we look at the confession's language. They do not simply say, yet, because they did not proceed, not from a heart purified by something else, but they add by faith, because they from the proof text, the difference between Abel's and Cain's was faith. Cain's offering was not pleasing unto God, was not accepted by God. What's the difference? Because God loved animal fat? Because God loved barbecue smell? No. According to the Bible, inspired text Hebrew, what, they, what he lacked was faith. So by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. And verse 6, they are attaching the importance of faith in bringing. So we learn that. It's really not about motivation. But the question is, what kind of heart do you have? Is your heart purified and sanctified by faith? Because certain kind of heart will produce certain kind of motivation. So we learn two things about this. How terrifying it is that your works or even sacrifices may look the same outwardly. But your heart is not right and the language that they use is your heart is not by faith. Not simply purified and sanctified, washed by the blood of Christ, but by quoting Hebrews eleven six, They are emphasizing, if you do not worship God in faith, by faith, everything is in vain. So we learn how terrifying it is that you could sit in this place participate in the proceedings of worship, yet if you lack faith, your worship is not accepted. Something that we could apply to ourselves. But at the same time, it is also encouraging that you could be a base person as you could be. You may not have education. You may not have certain manners. You may not have certain physical strength and so on. But if you offer up something by faith, obviously that is pleasing to God. So that's the first thing. That's what we learn from going back to the text and to the proof text and do some digging. Second thing was the manner. Nor are done in a right manner according to the word. 
non-believers, they do the good works, but they proceed not from the heart that is purified by faith, but also the manner in which they do the things is not according to the word. Obviously, they don't know the word. So it's a double strike, second strike. And I look at A. Why is it A? Because when they run out of alphabets, then you go back to A. So that, and by the way, the original manuscript, they have those things, the case. It's not as small as you could find in modern versions, but now they turn to A, proof text. What's the proof text? Not right manner. It's First Corinthians, that love chapter. Verse 3 says, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity... Well, that's agape in Greek. So love. If you don't have love, it profiteth me nothing. That's their proof text. What should you then think about? Imagine always regard the Westminster theologians better theologians than you and me. You know what struck me from their proof text was why would they choose verse 3? You go back and read chapter 13 and verse 1 and 2. They still talk about the same thing. Let me read it to you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all my mysteries and all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So verse 1 still talks about the same thing. If you don't have love, it's nothing. If you don't have love, it's nothing. But they chose only verse 3 to emphasize, I believe, to sell everything that I have to feed the poor and even burn my body to emphasize that you could impress people. Verse 1 and 2 is not really as impressive as verse 3. If somebody could give up your entire possession, if you could give up your body, wouldn't you be in the annals of some saints? I don't know if you have heard such stories, but in my upbringing... I've, I've known and heard few people who sold their houses to give their proceedings to the seed money for church buildings. I at least know two people. I could give their names. And they were not Americans who've been here for a long time, immigrants, who came here, who bought the house, and that's the only thing that they had, and they sold it and to give that proceeding to the church. And it became the foundation for that Korean churches, a couple of Korean churches that I know. I mean, it's amazing. Here too, you could do an amazing thing. But if you don't have love, that's the process. If not done in a right manner according to the word, well, that's sinful that they are saying. But think about this for a moment. There is three aspects, correct? Motivation, process, and the goal. Motivation and the goal, you only are responsible before God. It's only between you and God. 
What messes up a Christian community is the process, don't you think? I don't know what your motivation is. I don't know what your goal is. It's only between God and you. But the process, if we do not proceed with the man according to the word of God, division will happen. Gossips will happen. Backstabbing will be happening. And that church will be torn apart. Always have headaches, problems, divisions in the church because of the proceedings. And in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I remind you in verse 4, when Apostle Paul talks about what that love is, what that love looks like, the very first adjective that he uses is what? Love is patient. There are so many qualifications and attributes of love, but forget about it. To live with one another in a communal setting, you need love. Yes, but love, character, is patient. If you lack patience as a person, to your children, to your parents, to your spouse, to your co-workers, and, well, that's secular. But here in the church, if you lack patience about towards someone, it's going to break down. The final one is the end, right end. Right end is the glory of God. So you have to say, okay, what would that Westminster divines would think about as the proof text? What proof text would you give? Well, OPC gives, adds, the obvious reference. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatever ye do, do all to the glory of God. That's an obvious, obvious proof text. So I don't like that. Um, but what would uh, the Westminster divines give? That's the final Proof text that we are going to consider. That's Matthew 6. To talk about the glory of God. Isn't that interesting? What are they trying to teach? They talk about hypocrites. Difference between hypocrites and non-hypocrites. And hypocrites do certain things. If you read, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Hypocrites do the things to be seen by men. You will see that often here, many times. Hypocrites, one thing that hypocrites do, they do the things so that they could be seen by men for the glory of men. That's the phrase here. They may have glory of men and they have their reward. That's the hypocrites. What do they do? Hypocrites do the things. It's not that they don't do anything, but they do. But they do so that they could be seen by man to be praised by men for the glory of men and they, well, the Bible really does not condemn them when they're going to hell. No, they don't say, but they have their reward. Their reward is confined to human society. It is sin. People praise you. People give you recognition. You are respected, whatever. But your reward is here and it will perish here. So in contrast to that hypocrites, the Westminster divines draw our attention. So 
in parallel thinking, true Christians whose end purpose is the glory of God, they do the things so that do not sin, they're not seen by men. It does not matter whether they are seen by men or not, but they will, they will still do. They are not rewarded by men. There's no praise from men because they don't see what you are doing. But the obvious implication of that is you are rewarded by God in heaven. At least in this proof text. And they are fine with that. So if you would ask them, what's the characteristics of the people, Christians, who serve God as non-hypocrites? They would say they serve God no matter what. They are not seen by men. There are no praises by men, no recognition by men. They are simply ordinary people delivering unto God whatever they possess. And their reward is from God, and it is not seen by men, it is not in this world, and you will only find out your reward when you go to heaven. That's what they teach. Three things that set apart the hypocrites, non believers, and us is that we have three different things. It applies to all phases and aspects of your life. Isn't that a good thing? No matter what you do, you examine your heart. What is my motivation? What's the process? What's my end goal? I want to end today's message with one recent event in my life. A few weeks ago, one of my friends in Northern California, a pastor, he messaged me saying, can you pray for my mother-in-law? She had corona recently, but it somehow evolved into uh, blood cancer or something like that. I really couldn't figure out what, what that was. So that was like Saturday uh, afternoon. And Sunday after church, I messaged him saying, what's going on with her? And he said, she passed away. And he's going to Korea. His wife already left. So the moment, from the moment that I received the text on Saturday afternoon to Sunday afternoon, she passed. Her mother-in-law, his mother-in-law, I do not recall her name. But their mother-in-law with her husband, they were missionaries, Korean missionaries. So uh, after that, they did um, YouTube live worship for that funeral service. So they were missionaries 20 years ago, and the guy went to Kabul, Afghanistan, 2002. That year is very, very important because that I don't want to use the word invasion. That's what people say, invasion of Afghanistan, as if American forces invaded Afghanistan. But that was 2001. But they went to that city, Kabul, Afghanistan, 2002, husband and wife and his future wife, 
who was at the time a young teenager, to, to Kabul, that war-torn country, saying, that's the time we need to go. So they went in the rubbles, and that's why his wife became a nurse. And her dream is to go back to Afghanistan to rebuild a, uh, a hospital or something. So they went, can you imagine going to Afghanistan 2002, right after the war, taking teenage daughter, in a sense, destroying her future? And they went. They served, I don't know, like 10 years. My friend, the pastor, the, the, the guy, pastor's parents were also missionaries for now about 30 years in Bangladesh. So he grew up in Bangladesh and he came to the States only when he was in, a, I don't know, middle school or something like that. So I saw the pictures in the YouTube live, the uh, funeral, funeral worship, and you know how they replay their lives by stitching the pictures together. And I mean, it just struck me. It's one thing to think about or hear about missionaries in somewhere. But when you see the pictures, that, that just breaks my heart. That just breaks your heart. And um, they did that missionary work for about 10 some years, more than 10 years. And by the grace of God, she came to the, the wife, future wife, she came to Baylor University and she did masters in UPenn, and she is she is a a nurse and whatever that she's doing. But her mother passed away when she was only sixty years old, and um, it really struck me. The home church that sent out and sponsored that couple called back to one of the really largest churches in the southern part of Korea more than 1,000 members of church. Um, and now they are enjoying their pastoral life. After that, so many years in foreign countries, it was not just Afghanistan, they went through all kinds of different countries in Southeast Asia, and they spent basically their entire lives in mission field. And now they are called back by their mother church, and one of the largest churches in the conservative, Koshin Presbytery, and now they are enjoying that pastoral life. And they just had a baby, so, you know, grandson. And then when they are about to enjoy their rest of their lives in the security of southern part of Korea, now God calls her. Really suddenly, at the age of 60 years old, home. So that's the story. Life is short. You may not heard about her. I did not know until now where and how she served with the heart of Christ. People, total strangers, just because Christ showed her Christ's love, they went forth and served Christ's kingdom. So that's kind of Christians, unknown Christians, that the end aim is the glory of God. May it spur us to serve God and Christ more and more. Let's pray.